0: So we do not design for people, we design with people.
1: This is Don Norman. He's the director of the Design Lab at UC San Diego. And he spent his entire career thinking about how to design in a way that creates visceral responses in people.
0: That's a very important thing. and In fact, we call this community-driven design. It has to come from the community.
1: In our previous episode, we explored how organizations are designing collaborative approaches to address different kinds of social problems, problems in different sectors. And the organizations we spoke to talked about understanding the needs of their users, about how important it is to co-create solutions with them, and to do it with humility.
0: There are lots of people in this world who believe this and who are already working this way. Um, I'm sure there are thousands of people. Thousands of people is a lot. However, it's a small percentage. We have uh, seven billion people on Earth. So when we're talking about thousands of people, uh, that's too small a percentage even to give us a percent. But I think a thousand people isn't a bad way of starting because those thousand people can bring together larger groups and more groups. And again, slowly, incrementally make some changes. But those groups are, um, they're difficult to to run, by the way, because (laughs) difficult to manage because part of the philosophy is that we don't manage it.
2: Welcome back to Sea Change, a show about societal change in a digital interconnected world. I'm Radhika Vishwanathan. And I'm Samyukta Varma. This podcast chronicles the work of governments, civil society organizations, social entrepreneurs, philanthropists, and design thinkers, all working to solve social problems at scale. In this episode, we find out how do you build ecosystems for social change? What kind of support does it need? Many new initiatives bring the citizen, the state, and the private sector together. What can we learn from them? What can we learn from networks about the best ways to govern these systems?
1: All this and more in our final episode of Sea Change. The global challenges that we are facing right now, this disease that cannot be cured without joint effort, that has greatly exacerbated the severity of our underlying social and economic inequalities. This challenge needs ecosystem frameworks.
3: This pandemic that is upon us, we really don't know how long it will last. We also know that it's probably not the last pandemic. So it gives us a real opportunity to redesign our responses in the future, our resilience in the future. So for example, during the tsunami, right? What emerged again from that was several co-created mechanisms for early warning systems, which are now very well in place and in fact have been used in Orissa and other places where they've had threats of Severe cyclonic storms. So, together with the people, together with the state, a sort of resilience framework was put in place.
2: Rohini Nilekini is the founder chairperson of Argyam Foundation. And as a philanthropist, she is keenly interested in how collaborative systems accelerate social change for the better. And while we know that disasters bring together the energies of the development sector, what is the way then to effectively respond to this disaster given its complexity and scale?
3: So look, what did we see when, as this pandemic started to unfold? Who were the first responders out there? It was the Samaj. It was Samaj-based institutions. They were right there at the door of the people who are falling sick, helping them to go to hospitals, making sure they had food and rations. Why did that happen so quickly? Because there is automatic trust between the citizens and the Samaj-based actors and institutions. And I think trust is the key word. How do we deepen the trust in government institutions? How do we reduce the recent friction between samaj organizations and state organizations so that they can work more effectively together uh, now and for the next times to come? So how do you rebuild that trust is by unpacking elements of the distrust to talk across divides, to talk across suspicions, to talk beyond them, and to genuinely build learning from what has happened just now and in other crises, to build processes, to quickly cement trust between especially Samaj organizations and Sarkar organizations, and wherever needed the market as well. That work can begin in a crisis, but must continue into the long term.
2: Rohini believes that societal platform thinking also allows for a different class of problems to take prominence.
3: You take any sector that has common pool resource issues, right, whether it's clean air or clean water. In water, especially in a very diverse hydrological country like ours, the response to a water problem in Bihar is very different from the response required to a water problem in Rajasthan. And so to be able to start from that first mile. So if you don't see it as the last mile, if you see it as the first mile and you start to solve from there, then you involve the actors who are closest to the problem. In Rajasthan, it will be about drought. In Bihar, it is about flood. And who knows the responsiveness required more than the people who are experiencing the problem themselves.
1: Working for the underserved is very clearly in the mandate of the Omidyar Network.
4: I am Rupa Kudwa. I am Managing Director of Omidyar Network India. Our particular focus is on the bottom 60% of India's income distribution. I really believe that because we focus on innovation and tech in serving this population segment, it brings all the three sectors into
1: play. The public, the private and the CSOs.
4: So that is really speaking to the fact that you can create highly affordable products catering to a population segment where traditionally people have believed that it is not possible to build large, viable and valuable businesses.
1: The challenge of addressing the needs of this group has a strong technological component. The massive proliferation of smartphones in India, where data costs are amongst the lowest in the world, has meant that businesses and governments can access this population much more easily than they could do before. But there is work to be done to better understand the lives of this group of people.
4: Very quickly, entrepreneurs have realized that this customer segment is very different from the first wave of internet users. They're very different in terms of their educational background, their language proficiency, their education levels, their income levels, and their social and cultural context is also very different. And that is why entrepreneurs now have to design businesses and solutions which are tailored for the very major differences between this population segment and the first wave of internet users. And it is resulting, therefore, in very fascinating business models, which actually reflect a deep, deep understanding of the digital journey of the next half billion Indian. It almost requires a reimagining of the Internet for this segment.
1: Rupa talked to us about the example of the ubiquitous shopping cart symbol at the top corner of all e-commerce platforms. The image itself is based on the Western shopping cart and references a very different shopping experience.
4: The shopping experience of a person from the next half billion segment is actually walking up to a Kirana store, standing behind the counter, getting served by an individual who narrows down the selection of products and helps you make a decision. And therefore, a shopping cart symbol is very alien to their life experience. Now, add up a zillion little things like that, and the internet all of a sudden feels very remote, feels very inaccessible uh, and non-contextual for the next half billion.
1: It's a simple example, but it speaks to the deep importance of understanding the groups you design for. And while the goal of reflecting the experiences of the next half billion is one thing... The other big challenge is to ensure that platforms do not exacerbate existing inequalities.
4: Take the issue of women. How do you make the internet a safe space or a perceived safe space for women from the next half billion segment with so many social beliefs wrapped around the issue of women accessing the internet? Will they get quote unquote exposed to bad influences? And yet women represent 50% of the consumers in this segment, so it's really important not only to get them online, but to have them become comfortable online to an extent that they start transacting online, which is why we've invested in many women-centric platforms, Pratilipi, for example, or HeloFi, which is a parenting app, uh, mostly for mothers-to-be and mothers from smaller town India. So, you know, these are a few examples of new kinds of entrepreneurship that are emerging in India. They are also breaking many myths that you cannot build via valuable businesses targeting this segment of the population.
2: Entrepreneurship is built on the idea of innovation, on finding the critical gap in the long-standing systems that can revolutionize the way people work and think. And there are well-recorded examples Like how the introduction of hospices in the healthcare system in the UK and the US in the 70s made us completely rethink palliative care. Or the contributions of microfinance and social entrepreneurship in Bangladesh that transformed the financial systems that serve the poor. A conversation is happening now about collaboration amongst funding institutions. What should the funders and supporters of these organisations do to strengthen ecosystems?
3: I think we are also seeing philanthropists and foundations Find new ways to collaborate. And while philanthropists are learning to collaborate among themselves and respond collectively, I think it's a great opportunity everywhere for philanthropy to now step up to underwrite more collaboration in the social sector itself, to underwrite much more innovation, and to open up their ways of giving so that it is less tight, it is more open, it is more flexible and it allows for a lot more experimentation in the social sector so that the social sector can become even better at being not just first responders but long-term responders in a very resilient manner.
4: When I came to Omidyar Network India about five years ago, I find that it is actually a platform that thrives on the interconnectedness between the private sector, the public sector and nonprofit sector. And our success actually depends on all these three sectors working together. Uh, Because uh, our purpose is to invest in bold entrepreneurs who help create a meaningful life for every Indian. Rupa
1: believes the post-COVID world is only going to see more impact investing given to enterprises focused on the underserved. And she says that the Omidyar network will assess and evaluate these investment opportunities no differently from how any commercial investor typically would.
4: And I think that is great for the entrepreneur because I think it helps them observe the discipline that is required to build a sustainable business because only if you can build a business which is scalable and sustainable can you really have impact.
2: Social entrepreneurship is a model that has become very popular in the past decade. As a practice, much of its appeal lies in the fact that it focuses not just on financial gain but it also addresses societal well-being. But the path that social businesses take to create long-standing sustainable change is complex and challenging. It often means taking on the social system that perpetuated the underlying problem they are trying to solve. The journey can be meandering, navigating between the smallest units of the problem, from uncollected garbage, for example, to the failures in the macro ecosystem that result in poor garbage collection, to understanding how all of this then adversely affects public health. This means dealing with everything from the complex set of rules and policies that determine how garbage ought to be managed, and all the institutions responsible for this work, and then back down again to the behavior of citizens. This is Kuldeep Dantewadiya, founder of REIT Benefit.
5: So let me give you a very simple example. You'll see garbage trash outside your house, and uh, you, first of all, nobody knows because it'll, it'll be dumped in a corner of a street uh, or in a no man's land where nobody has ownership of. Uh, Now, the garbage collector might be collecting the garbage from there every single day, but the garbage just keeps on piling because the default is already there in terms of the garbage being there. Now, as citizens, even if we solve, we know that the garbage issue will resurface two days from now, four days from now. As a garbage collector, I know that even if I collect, the pile is not going to go away tomorrow or day after. So, this is the inherent wickedness of this problem. And the second is because nobody owns it, you you are solving this, say, once or twice, but you have to be at it. And I think that is the uh, the larger issue.
2: In this case, Kuldeep says these public problems have no single owner. The civic duty is shared between the state and the civil society. This is why these problems are called wicked. It's because they are linked that every solution leads to another facet of the problem, which needs another intervention, or a new perspective, or a new set of partners. And this is why they need a different approach.
5: I think we look at public problems uh, in, in, in very cognitive ways. So most of the times we think of solutions uh, which are very you know cognitive, rational, intellectual in nature. But these problems are more dynamic, needs more of a hands-on approach and to be at it.
2: REAP Benefit is trying to recast the relationship between the citizen and the government to deal with civic problems. Working from the other side, from the perspective of the state, Srinivas Katikitala is a senior official with the government of India. And he currently is the establishment officer and additional secretary at the Department of Personal and Training, working with professional development and training for civil servants. Mr. Srinivas begins by explaining to us how, in his opinion, governments used to work and communicate.
6: And thereafter, so long as we did not have technology, particularly communication technology, There was a huge degree of delegation of uh, responsibility that was done down the vertical channel of each of these organizations.
2: And in the government, the link between the state and the citizens is still the civil service cadre, the Indian Administrative Service, or the IAS.
6: So we saw mid, let's say, 70s, 80s, even early 90s, a situation where there was an interface between the citizen and the civil service, which was representing the government, which was the real point of interface. Now, when technology started enabling the citizens to interact not just at that level, but with the other levels as well, when situations become far more complex and multidisciplinary, governments also now needed to respond differently, respond at a larger scale, population scale.
1: Thanks to telecommunications and advancements in computing capability, the manner in which citizens and governments interact has changed quite significantly, while the social contract has stayed the same. This is what Kuldeep spoke about earlier, the evolving nature of state and society interactions. And as Rohini points out, even within the state, governance frameworks have evolved from centralized structures to networks.
3: So I think that governments have really come to this realization that you need to create a flexible governance structure and that it is very much possible in this digital era by creating common public shared open technology-based platforms that allow you to sort of shift shapes depending on the need, right? So you can move upwards towards centralization when there's a national emergency or move downwards towards decentralization as required when you need a very immediate local and contextual response. And digital backbones allow you to do that.
5: So my larger learning has been that the citizens... uh play a very important role in balancing the supply piece of it. But the more you centralize and the more you don't involve the citizens in it, the system becomes very, very fragile by nature. And uh, the more the governments decentralize it, the system becomes anti-fragile. And you're not reacting to the problem, but you're actually proactively trying to solve the problem. We
3: have seen that right now, even in the pandemic, where different states, panchayats and the center were able to respond differently But simultaneously to the needs of migrants, whether it was to organize transport, whether it was to organize temporary shelter, or whether it was to organize rations. So I think governments have understood that you create this public digital infrastructure and you keep on adding nodes and networks to it.
1: So what does a platform for the civil servant of today look like?
6: I think a new paradigm is now evolving and luckily, I got kind of an approach, anticipated this new challenge where governments have to respond simultaneously at population scale to problems that are happening simultaneously at every element of the population, maybe to each citizen. I mean, today's current COVID crisis is a, is a great example of that. First of all, you do not have a, have a sense of the temporality. What is the time span? You have no idea second the agency the agent that is causing it is slightly incomprehensible and third every citizen is experiencing it simultaneously which means suddenly government systems that is large public systems now have to have the capability to respond simultaneously at the operational level at the level of the citizen once again so i think we have come a full 360 degree where we need that interface at the, at the level where the citizen is interfaced, which means you need capability at that level, which means you also need authority at that level. At the same time, we want to ensure that the authority, insofar as the relationship between the citizen and the civil servant is considered, concerned, is also well exercised.
1: This is how I got, or the Integrated Government Online Training Program, was set up.
6: The idea was, how do you make sure that the individual civil servant is getting that uh, bit of information that will make him more competent at that moment in time, no matter where he is.
1: Because remember, Indian bureaucrats are posted across the country, from our highest hills to our most remote villages. And their access to this training varies widely. Some would access it on a smart device. Somebody else might have a tablet, somebody else might have a computer, or a few would share a television. And the design of the platform has to cater for this diversity.
6: And then you have the next level. What is their level of interest? What is the level, depth of knowledge that they need at that instance? Which means you're giving, again, a a kind of a democratic uh, choice, where you're allowing that individual to choose, what is the level of information I need to absorb for this moment? for me to deliver this so this is the architecture which responds to a large large uh, challenge and a huge numbers of uh, civil servants so this therefore the way this has been uh, designed is with the ambition of responding to the needs of an individual civil servant no matter where map to the requirements of a citizen no matter where
1: One of the most interesting network-based programs to deliver medical mentoring and training is Project ECHO. What began as a local program in New Mexico to help community health centers diagnose hepatitis C, it has now become a worldwide movement for democratizing knowledge in medicine. We talked with Dr. Sunil Anand and Dr. Kumud Rai from ECHO India. Here's Dr. Anand.
7: ECHO India is a not-for-profit trust, was formed in 2008 and it actually leverages video conferencing technology for capacity building of healthcare workers.
1: And the model has proven to be extremely effective because of how medical education is typically structured. In medicine, teaching is still delivered by a senior doctor down to the junior doctors. ECHO disrupts these traditional hierarchies of knowledge completely. Here's Dr. Kumud Rai explaining.
7: Instead of it just being a theoretical model, but how to apply that knowledge to your setting, to your given patient is what ECHO does. One of the very important thing is that during the, during the meetings, there's a dialogue, there's a conversation, wherein the spokes or the learners are actually encouraged to present their cases. And these are real life cases. And if you sort out a real-life problem, that remains imprinted in your mind for a very, very long time.
1: Given the constantly evolving body of knowledge on coronavirus, doctors are constantly having to learn about the disease in real time and discuss and share findings with their peers. This is what the ECHO model does so well.
7: And we have found... Uh, that that is a great motivator for these people to learn things. I mean, you can learn things both ways. You can learn by the whip and you can learn by by, uh, love and affection. So this is the model which encourages people to think, which encourages people to solve their own problems and gently keeps on supporting them, nudging them.
1: Today, because of the pandemic we find ourselves in, the ability to deliver healthcare remotely has become essential. And it is only a matter of time before public health systems across the world make this a part of their program.
7: Now, when this thing hit, we keep a daily record. And, you know, we have crossed more than 600 clinics in this time. So all our staff or most of our staff is supporting these clinics. And... As we said, in some of them, there are literally thousands of people joining. In one, there were more than 5,000 people who joined.
2: ECHO's model has been surprisingly effective at responding quickly and adeptly and has demonstrated how it fits into ecosystems for public health. When we spoke to them in May, ECHO had already trained thousands of key medical workers, over 255,000 of them, 70,000 doctors, 150,000 frontline workers, and had created a platform for them to constantly share and learn. One of their early trainings was on the appropriate use of ventilators for the disease. And this kind of training is not theoretical. It cannot be learned from a textbook. It needs to be taught live, taught by one doctor to another.
7: But in COVID, for example, when the AINS doctors were conducting this ventilation clinic so so when they were trying to teach them some of the settings on that ventilator so one of the person said uh doctor we we understand the theory part of it you have told us the switches you have told this this but can you explain us a little bit of science about it how do i actually change the settings and all so immediately a whiteboard was arranged and the doctor actually drew diagrams on that and explained to that worker addressed his question in practical terms that what could be the settings on the ventilator if the things moved from one point to the other and how he could do it. This is kind of versatility of the model that you can use this virtual training. If it's a pure webinar, you never do it. At best, you put some slides and a slideshow and that. But here is, in real time, you can address the problem immediately, explain the science behind it in an interactive manner so that the person is satisfied that he's understood that thing. So I think that is one of these great strengths of the model, that apart from being a pure didactic model, it is a very interactive model.
2: ECHO's success is really about understanding how to scale learning. After all, their tagline is move knowledge and not people.
7: How would you get this model in where people are not being taught? We're not disseminating information. We are helping you implement the best practices. That's the big difference it makes. So let's say if it wasn't there, how would you connect? How would you train such a large number of people face-to-face? You cannot do it, right? Now, it's not only video conferencing. The ECHO model by... Coming in and sorting out your problem, that's how you will learn, right?
2: Platforms like the ones we've talked about over this season, Digital Green's Farm Stack and Deeksha, the teacher training platform, adopt the principles of an open public good. This means that they create value for all users and allow for participation by actors. Open infrastructures help different ecosystem actors co-create solutions that can reach millions of people. In other words, while a solution solves, an infrastructure helps different people solve.
4: So when we talk about an open digital ecosystem, it has three layers. First layer is the public digital infrastructure itself. The second layer is what we refer to as the governance layer. And this is the layer which is really vital in protection from harms. And then you have a third layer, which is the community layer, which is very important to ensure that the public digital infrastructure that is created just doesn't remain a white elephant, but actually gets used, that the community engages with that infrastructure to build new solutions. And also the community engages with that infrastructure to make sure that it is protecting users and and the public at large from harm.
1: This question is critical. How will it enable and empower or limit the possibilities of individual actors in the system? Sangeet Paul Chaudhry is one of the foremost platform strategists and a co-author of the widely read book, Platform Revolution. He says that the answer lies in thinking about openness and control and on the importance of managing both
8: the reason i find uh, the the topic of uh, digital public goods and data public infrastructure so interesting is because there are always two sides two perspectives on any digital public goods strategy there is the perspective of large-scale enablement and empowerment that is possible by uh, applying open digital public goods and by proliferating them and there is the, the contrasting perspective that whenever something is open, digital and public, there's a potential for a complementary control point to be created. And if you are a regulator or if you are somebody who is interested in the success of the ecosystem, you need to ensure that those control points do not exploit the ecosystem at any point.
1: So why is it important to ask and address this question right now?
8: Managing these two perspectives of how digital public infrastructure leads to large-scale development, large-scale empowerment, but at the same time, it it has the potential to create large-scale dependence. It's, it's that tension, and that tension uh, is at the heart of a lot of uh, debate today, from thinking of how to achieve the UN's sustainable development goals using digital public goods, to thinking of antitrust actions against large platforms. All of this is fundamentally around this tension between uh, openness and control.
1: You can build greater agency within a system when you design with the intention for stakeholders to jointly own and contribute. There are many perspectives on how this could play out. Sangeet brings up Wikipedia, which is one of the greatest examples of distributed editorial co-curation.
8: They've had to rely on the deputation system to such an extent that despite being a platform, the governance has become... A hierarchy instead of the hierarchy being in an organization it's spread across the ecosystem but it's still very much a hierarchy of a few hundred people around the world who control the workings of Wikipedia so the challenge with uh, uh, designing access and um, decision rights uh, as reputation systems in a platform is that eventually you start losing the advantages of uh, an open public infrastructure and you start retreating into traditional organizational models, top-down management. You start retreating into all of those traditional frameworks.
1: But there are ways to offset these effects. When you scale in a system like this, some level of hierarchy emerges, which in turn can limit agency and initiative. But when designing the governance framework, other ways to make sure the scaling up continues to encourage and support the contributions of all. Sangeet explains one possible way forward. Because the power of individuals within a big system resides in their reputations, their relationships with collaborators. One way of thinking about governance is to base it on peer recognition.
8: What's really important in uh especially in in building a societal platform kind of a model, is to really think through how you would design reputation as a completely peer-to-peer, peer-owned resource. Peer-owned reputation system would be one where the reputation system itself would become a public data infrastructure as well, where peers in the community would have the ability not just to be dated and... uh, their decision rights managed through the reputation system, but they, sh- they would also have the ability to innovate uh, around it because it's a public digital good.
2: But systems do require leadership, and this is where the interplay of the rules of hierarchies and networks come into question. To find out more about what this could look like, we spoke to Anne-Marie Slaughter. She is the CEO of New America. And in her work as a political scientist, she studied the power of networks and has tried to understand what kind of leadership a network needs so that it can create spaces where everyone can participate equitably.
9: Clarifying the goal is hugely important. If you just think about a group of friends who are going out and want to do something, how do you make sure everybody does the same thing and something that makes everybody happy? You have to really clarify what people want. Uh, And some people may not want the same thing and then that's fine, but they shouldn't then be part of a particular network because you cannot lead a network where everybody's going in a different direction. A network leader really leads by catalyzing the action of other people. And again, you cannot command it. You cannot say, I want this done by that day, you know, or you're fired. You don't have that kind of power. What you do have is the power of enabling the action of others, of unlocking their power, their creativity, their energy. You may get things that are different than what you expected, but they will be wonderful.
1: We are witnessing societies across the world grapple with inequality. There's a strong need for leadership that sees shared ownership of solutions and inclusion as an imperative.
9: It is absolutely imperative for all of us in our organizations, in our communities, in our countries, and in the world to harness all of the talent that we are not tapping right now. There is much more room for young people, for people of color, for women, for disabled people, for all the people who have felt that they are at the bottom of the hierarchy or that they are at the margins of society. We can connect them in ways that tap their talent and energy and creativity and intelligence. And we will then all benefit Uh, from that tremendously diverse, really multi-talented collection of people. It's connecting those who are on the margins, who've been ignored, who've been at the bottom, and bringing them as close to the center as we can.
0: But there has to be some kind of management and control and boundaries. And just how that is put together in a very, very large group, uh, not obvious. But what we want to do is have a very different administrative structure, a very different uh, philosophy, that this is aimed by the people, for the people.
1: Don Amman thinks about this a lot, and he says you have to imagine it.
0: It's important to be enthusiastic. That doesn't mean we know the answers. We don't know the answer. And that's important. It's important that we say we do not know the answers because that kept, keeps us flexible, that as we are implementing and doing things, we know we're going to be learning all the time and modifying and changing. That's a very important part of the philosophy.
2: This philosophy needs a vision that defines what can be achieved through collaboration. But as simple as the idea is, it is hard to execute. The crisis we are in now affects everybody, Everybody is vulnerable and all barriers are down. And in some way, the separations that have divided us have collapsed, opening up a path for a new way.
3: We've also learned a new language of social protection, personal responsibility that we can all use. What if we thought about other complex problems also in this way, that actually, whether it's education, health or livelihoods or climate, Actually, they affect us all in some way or another. And so, if we can find ways to work together to create a new language of problem solving, which allows us to listen to people who are affected, not leave out some people. Include as many actors as you can. Perhaps, perhaps the complexity of those problems will look less frightening. So I think in some way, this pandemic allows us an opportunity to break through into new ways of thinking, of working together as humanity, as society, as Samaj. I really believe that.
2: Thanks to Rohini Nilekani, Anne Marie Slaughter, Don Norman, Sri K. Rupa Kudwa, Sangeet Paul Chaudhary, Dr. Kumar Drai, and Dr. Sunil Anand, and Kuldeep Dantivadia. Sea Change is co produced by Societal Platform and Vaka Media. For more information, go to societalplatform.org.